This episode will discuss topics such as sex, rape, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to the Strange and Interesting Podcast, a show about folklore, the paranormal, urban legends, and pretty much anything else I happen to find strange and interesting. Today, we will be looking at what is, in my opinion, the quintessential figure from American urban legends, and that is the Hookman. The story goes like this. A teenage couple goes out on a date one night. On the way home, the boyfriend decides to pull over to the local lover's lane. A lover's lane is a place where couples would go to kiss, cuddle, and maybe engage in other activities. These locations were often isolated and could include parking lots in rural areas or a stretch of road on the outskirts of town. This practice is sometimes referred to as parking or necking. If the location is overlooking a lake or large body of water, the act is sometimes referred to as going to the submarine races. I'll let you use your imagination as to why it got this name. But back to our story. After the couple settles in, they are interrupted by an announcement on the radio. A manhunt is underway for an inmate who escaped from the state penitentiary. He replaced his missing right hand with a hook and should be considered extremely dangerous. This makes the girl nervous, and she demands her boyfriend take her home immediately. Frustrated that his plans are ruined, He hits the accelerator and drives off. When he arrives at her house, the two teenagers make a horrifying discovery. A hook embedded in the side of the car. Like many urban legends, there are variations to the story. In some versions, the hook-handed man was not an inmate at a prison but a patient who escaped from a mental hospital. The radio announcer might also mention the escaped inmate was imprisoned for rape or murder. Sometimes, the reason the girlfriend wants to leave is because she hears a scraping sound. Other versions of the story claim one of the teenagers sees the hook man just as he is about to attack and the couple is able to drive off in time. The origin of the story is difficult to pin down, but it is believed to have been during the 1950s. According to folklorist Jan Harold Brunvand, in his book The Vanishing Hitchhiker, American Urban Legends and Their Meanings, by 1959 the story was widely circulated among teenagers. The Hookman story was also referenced in a Dear Abby column in 1960. One reader of the column wrote in, If you are interested in teenagers, you will print this story. I don't know whether it's true or not, but it 
doesn't matter because it served its purpose on me. A fellow and his date pulled into their favorite, Lover's Lane, to listen to the radio and do a little necking. The music was interrupted by an announcer who said that there was an escaped convict in the area who had served time for rape and robbery. He was described as having a hook instead of a right hand. The couple became frightened and drove away. When the boy took his girl home, he went around to open the car door for her. Then he saw a hook on the door handle. I don't think I will ever park to make out as long as I live. I hope this does the same for other kids. The Hookman story is sometimes combined with details from a similar urban legend called The Murdered Boyfriend. This story appears to have originated at the University of Kansas in 1964. The tale begins in a similar fashion. The couple is on their way home from a date. Instead of stopping at the local lover's lane, though, they pull over because the car runs out of gas breaks down, or the boyfriend needs to relieve himself. The boy tells the girlfriend to wait in the car. She waits as instructed, but gets scared when she hears a strange sound coming from above. Sometimes it is a scraping sound, sometimes it's a banging sound, and sometimes it is a dripping sound, but she is too scared to leave the car. Later that evening, or sometimes the next day, a police officer approaches the girl and tells her to exit the vehicle, walk towards him, and do not look back. She does so anyway and sees the reason for the strange sounds. If the storyteller claims the girl heard a scraping or dripping sound, it is because her boyfriend's dead body is hanging from a branch above the car. The sound was caused by either his blood or fingernails making contact with the roof. But in some versions of the story, the sound is from a psychopath who is still sitting on the car and banging the boyfriend's severed head on the roof. While the boyfriend is usually the victim, in some tellings of the tale, he survives and the girlfriend is the one who is murdered. In another variation, the girl sees the murderer standing outside of the car holding the boyfriend's severed head in one hand and the keys to the car in the other. The hook man, or a variation of the character, has made its way into popular culture as well. An early example is the 1947 film Dick Tracy's Dilemma. In this movie, the detective hunts down a killer who has a hook for a right hand. Even though this film predates the time when the story of the hook man started to gain popularity, I still think it is possible that the character in that movie may have had some influence on the legend, though I don't think we really can tell for certain. Another notable example is the film I Know What You Did Last Summer. This movie opens with four teenagers 
hitting a pedestrian, then dumping his body in the water. Unbeknownst to the teens, their victim survived and comes back to stalk them, using a hook for a weapon. Other examples include the 1997 anthology film, Campfire Tales, the children's horror story series, Scary Stories to Tell in the Dark, the 1999 movie, Lover's Lane, and the seventh episode of the first season of the TV show, Supernatural. I also wanted to share a story behind the cover of a role-playing game I wrote called Strange Things Afoot. This game draws inspiration from creepypasta and urban legends. The cover was created by an artist friend of mine named Casey Wilson. The picture shows a girl with a cell phone taking a picture of a hooked hand hanging from her car door. There's a green-skinned monster lurking behind her, getting ready to strike. Casey's original idea was not to use a generic monster, but instead have the girl being threatened by the Slender Man, Smile Dog, and one of the puppets from Candle Cove. The symbolism was the bridge between the old and the new, with the hook hanging from the car door representing a classic legend, while the three characters behind her representing characters from contemporary legends. I loved the idea, but since Slenderman is under copyright, that would not have been an option. And if I'm not mistaken, Candle Cove might be under copyright as well. With the legend's growing popularity, folklorists and researchers have attempted to find possible historical interpretations for the Hookman. David Mickelson, a writer for the popular urban legend and fact-checking website Snopes.com, has suggested the roots of the legend might lie in the 1946 Texarkana Moonlight Murders. These events occurred in an isolated area around the border between Texas and Arkansas. The first attack in this event occurred on February 22nd. Jimmy Hollis and his girlfriend, Mary Jeanne Larry, had stopped at the local Lover's Lane after seeing a movie. The attacker, who would later become known as the Phantom Killer, shined a flashlight into the car and ordered the couple to get out. The Phantom cracked Jimmy on the head with his pistol and sexually assaulted Mary. Fortunately, she was able to escape to a nearby house and the residents were able to notify the police. Jimmy spent several days in the hospital but was able to recover from the attack. The couple described the Phantom as being about six feet tall but since he wore a pillowcase with eye holes over his head, he could not be positively identified. News of the attack caused widespread panic in the region. Stores sold out of guns and ammunition. Residents took various precautions. Police increased their patrols. And some locals even tried to hunt down the Phantom so they could take the law into their own hands. 
The second attack happened in March. On the 24th, Richard Griffin and Polly Ann Moore were found dead in Richard's car. Like the first attack, the murder occurred at a local lover's lane. Investigators believe that the couple was murdered outside of the car, but placed back inside after being killed. There was speculation that Polly Ann was raped, though this has not been confirmed. The next murder took place on April 14th. The victims were two teenagers named Paul Martin and Betty Jo Booker. Paul had been shot four times and was found near the road. Betty Jo was found nearly two miles away. The final attack took place on May 3rd and involved a husband and wife named Virgil and Katie Starks. The murder occurred at the Starks' home. Virgil was shot from behind while he was reading the newspaper. Katie tried to call the police but was shot as well. Despite the injury, she managed to escape and make it to a neighbor's house where she was able to notify the police and get to a hospital so she could be treated for her injury. She survived, but unfortunately, her husband did not. Police and the Texas Rangers spent weeks investigating this case and tried to form a psychological profile of the Phantom. One psychologist, Dr. Anthony LaPala of the Federal Correctional Institution of Texarkana, believed the Phantom was likely an intelligent individual who was motivated by sadism as opposed to wealth because no money or valuables were taken from the victims. Many suspects were interviewed in relation to the murders, but the case remains unsolved to this day. The highest profile suspect was a man named Ewell Swinney. He was a car thief and counterfeiter. His wife Peggy even confessed to the police that her husband was the phantom killer, though she would later recant her confession. Ultimately, evidence connecting Ewell to the murders was lacking, and he was never brought to trial for the slayings. He was, however, convicted for his various other crimes. Another possible influence for the legend is Charles Barr of Tennessee. He attacked couples parked at the local Lover's Lane in January and May of 1923. His first two victims were Duncan Waller and Ruth Tucker. After shooting Duncan, he chased down Ruth, raped her, murdered her, and took the couple's valuables. The final attack occurred on May 29th. He returned to the same spot where he committed his first murder and found his next two victims, Obie Spencer and Laura Johnson. He killed Obie, shot Laura, and attempted to kidnap her. She was able to escape the car and made it to a house where the residents were able to get her to the police. Charles Barr would be caught the next year after it was discovered that his wife had sold a pocket watch resembling one carried by Obie Spencer to the local pawn shop. 
Charles was arrested, tried, and eventually executed in 1926. These are just two of many examples. Since lovers' lanes are often secluded or in heavily forested areas, it is possible for a potential killer to hide, wait for a car to park, commit his murder, then escape without being seen. The Zodiac Killer, the Son of Sam, and the Monster of Florence were also known to commit Lover's Lane murders. The Hookman legend has been subject to various interpretations. Perhaps the most common is to look at it as a cautionary tale against promiscuity. Prior to the 1960s, Americans had very different views on sex and sexuality. As some of my teachers and older friends and family members have told me, these things were not to be openly discussed. In the minds of many American adults, the only sexual activity that was seen as socially acceptable was that between married, heterosexual couples. Premarital sex was unacceptable, homosexuality was seen as either sinful or a mental disorder, and women who got pregnant out of wedlock, even if it was the result of rape, were frowned upon at best, ostracized at worst. Sadly, even married pregnant women could be the victim of discrimination. I had a social studies teacher back in high school who started teaching in the 1960s. I remember him telling us that when he started teaching, if a faculty or staff member got pregnant, she was forced to take leave as soon as she started to show. As he put it, the belief was that if students saw a pregnant woman, they would start to think about sex, and for some reason this would lead them to also go out and have sex. This attitude of, if kids don't see sex, they won't think about it, and therefore won't do it, was even present in the entertainment industry. There was a time when it was unusual for a television program to show a couple in bed together, even if they were married. If a TV show had a pregnant woman, then the words pregnant or pregnancy would not be used. A good example is the show I Love Lucy. The show's two main stars, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz, were actually married in real life, and in 1951, Lucille was pregnant. This was worked into the show, but the script writers had to find ways to indirectly reference the pregnancy without actually using the word pregnant or pregnancy. Usually, the pregnancy was referred to as her condition, or a character would say that Lucy was expecting. Yet, despite being a married couple with a child, they still slept in different beds. Because remember, if kids don't see or hear about sex, they won't do it, right? So a message we can take away from the story of the Hookman is that good girls and boys don't do that kind of thing. And if you try to engage in premarital sex, 
you just might become a murder victim. This trope has made its way into modern horror movies with a type of stock character called the final girl. She usually survives because she avoids giving in to the temptation of sex, drugs, and alcohol, while all the bad kids who do engage in these activities die. I mean, if there is a crime that is worthy of a brutal murder, smoking marijuana is certainly it, am I right? But I digress. The 2011 horror satire movie, The Cabin in the Woods, plays into this trope. Five college students are lured to an isolated cabin to be ritually sacrificed to a mysterious group of creatures called the Ancient Ones. Each one of the five students represents a common archetype seen in the horror genre. First is the whore. She represents the sexually promiscuous woman. Her opposite is the virgin. She is the pure one who avoids giving in to temptation. Next is the fool, who represents the character who usually is either into drugs or is seen as a slacker. The athlete can be seen as symbolic of the jock or the tough guy. Finally, the scholar represents the intellectual character. The most important rule for this ritual is that the whore needs to die first. Her foil, the virgin, doesn't need to die, but if she does, she needs to die last. During the movie, the people conducting the ritual use pheromones to manipulate the actions of the students. Perhaps this represents the anti-drug stance that was common during the heyday of slasher films and the fact that characters in horror movies tend to make very questionable decisions. Several folklorists, such as Alan Dundies and Bengt at Klintberg, have put forth various sexual interpretations of the Hookman legend. The hook can be seen as symbolic of the male genitalia, and its separation from the hookman's body can be seen as symbolic of castration. The book, Perspectives on Contemporary Legend, Volume 2, puts forth other interpretations, such as a fear of the disabled or becoming disabled oneself. Folklorist Bill Ellis interprets the hook as representing the murderer's own lack of sexuality. He cannot have a normal sexual relationship, so he interrupts the sex lives of others. Even though some people of the time may have looked down on teens having sex, Ellis explains that the threat of the hook man is not the normal sex drive of teenagers, but the abnormal drive of some adults to keep them apart. So what are we to make of the legend of the Hookman? Was it inspired by real-life murders? Did it start out as a campfire story that grew in popularity? Is it simply a cautionary tale made up by overprotective parents? Perhaps it is a combination of these things. We may never know the true origin of the tale of the hook-handed man. 
but it has made its mark on American folklore and continues to fascinate us to this day. Until next time, everyone, stay strange and stay interesting. You have been listening to a presentation of Point of Insanity Game Studio. Visit us on the web at POIGameStudio.com. Follow us on Twitter at POIGameStudio. Look us up on Facebook and email us at POIGameStudio at gmail.com.